All right, Acts chapter 1. We are, we're taking a pause, really, in our beginning of our study through the book of Acts. Uh, we're, we're camped out in these, uh, these verses in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Uh, as I've described before, the, this is the practical and simple description. I mean, there's lots of spiritual content in it, as we've already studied. But this is the, the simple description from the disciples' standpoint, from their actual experience through their eyes of the event, the moment when Jesus actually ascended back to heaven. And I'm going to reread it here in just a moment, but what we're doing is we're, we're using this event and the description of it as a launching point to, to kind of take a, a side study, uh, a focus of what really is a, a segment of what we call systematic theology, where we're, we're taking a, a deeper look at the ascension of Christ. And the reason we're doing that is I've described it as um, out of all of the great events in the life of Jesus, you know, his, his incarnation, his, his baptism, his, his miraculous ministry, his teaching ministry, his, his um, transfiguration, his his crucifixion, his resurrection, and ultimately his second coming in the future. Out of all of the great events in the life of the Lord Jesus and the ministry of the Lord Jesus, the ascension, I think, has gotten less attention than it should in church history and and certainly in our present generation. So I'm I'm trying to correct that, at least as far as we're concerned, and uh, focus our attention on this event in terms of what it means the significance of it for heaven's great plans and purposes for all of time and eternity and what it means and the significance of it for our own lives as well. But let's reread verses 9 through 11 and then uh, we're going to jump directly from there to Ephesians chapter 1. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now turning over to Ephesians 1 and um, this portion I, I really hadn't planned, but I want to add it because of David's word of exhortation this morning connected to the last song. The last song that we sang in our worship was uh, Open the Eyes of Our Hearts, and it's based upon this, uh, this prayer that Paul prayed, and he prayed it for the Ephesian church. It's a prayer that wasn't exclusively for them alone. I'm sure he prayed similar things for all of the churches that he, he planted and all of the believers that he was spiritually responsible for as an apostle and it's a prayer that uh, we should take to heart and we should uh, pray in similar ways for ourselves this is a prayer about the opening of our of our heart's eyes and uh, David explained it I just want to in a sense add a little bit more to what he had shared and that is that there's really two aspects or you could describe it as two categories, two phases, however you want to understand it, two ways that our heart's eyes are opened. And you understand why in this passage that I'm about to read, this prayer that I'm about to read, it's described as heart eyes. Open the eyes of our hearts. The reason being is that it's not focused on physical eyes, which is the primary emphasis of the Acts chapter 1 passage, what they actually saw with their physical eyes as Jesus ascended back to heaven. This is more concern. Paul here prays with a greater concern for the opening of, of heart eyes. So heart eyes are what we would call spiritual eyes. The ability to perceive with your heart, with your spirit, things that are hidden from natural observation and perspective. So we're studying right now, we're in the midst of, a, of an extended study of 12 great reasons why Jesus ascended back to heaven. But the entire world 
the entire culture, the entire society that surrounds us has no clue about any of these 12 things. And not just no clue, they don't care about any of these 12 things. But you and I should have more than a clue and we should have more than a low-level care about them. Let me read the prayer as Paul prayed it. The prayer actually starts in verse 17 of Ephesians 1 because it's a prayer for the opening of heart eyes, as we were singing this morning, connected to the ascension of Christ. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Having, he's praying for believers to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Now David, David declared, and it was a true declaration, that when you are born again, the eyes of your heart are opened. You see things about Jesus that the rest of the world remains blind to. You know him to be Lord. You know him to be Savior. So if your eyes, and they were, when you were born again, were truly open to see Jesus in a greater way than you ever saw him before, why would Paul bother to pray for believers who already have opened eyes for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened? The idea is, and this is just a simple and practical thing, just, just humor me in this for a moment. Everybody close your eyes for just a moment. How much do you see? Okay, now just barely crack your eyes open. You know, like just barely your eyelids. How much do you see? You see a little. And the, the further you open the eyelids of your physical body, the more light is coming in, the more you perceive, the more you are able to understand what's going on in the world around you. This is what Paul's praying for. Your eyes are already opened, but they're not as opened about certain things that matter most to the extent and to the degree that they should be. That's why we're camping here, focused on the ascension. Let me continue reading. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to or measured by the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised, <clears throat> when he raised him from the dead, <clears throat> excuse me, and seated him. This is where the ascension comes in. He wasn't simply raised from the dead. He was, but he was raised. And then above and beyond the raising from the dead, he was in his ascension seated at the right hand of the one in the heavenly places far above verse 21 all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come earlier i referenced the ascension relates to and it and it affects both time and eternity to follow and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We'll be coming back to that passage and camping there and what I anticipate to be next Sunday's message. But I, I, had to, I had to reference it this morning as David gave the word of exhortation, just so that maybe our hearts at the beginning of the study could capture the importance of why we're doing the study that we're doing. Uh, you already understand that Jesus ascended on high. But it's important that the eyes of your heart be more fully opened, opened wider to take in more understanding of the significance of his ascension. All right, so we are going through 12 reasons why. And I had, um, you know, and this is just the running joke, of course, with me, but I had great plans to cover six of them last Sunday, and I did make it successfully through three. So um, that means we still have nine ahead of us. My plan this morning is to, is to cover four. We'll see how far I get. Uh, the first one, join me if you would in the Gospel of John chapter three. So this is reason number four. Why did Jesus ascend? In, and, and we're looking at this from the standpoint of 
Why did he need to ascend? I don't know if you ever thought about that. Why, why didn't Jesus, we understand he had to die on the cross in order for us to be saved. And we understand he had to rise again from the dead to prove that his death on the cross was truly a saving death and then to conquer death on our behalf. We understand that. But after he rose again from the dead, why didn't he just go hide in a cave in the Himalayan mountains somewhere and wait until it was time to fully reveal himself to the world? Why did he have to leave this world and go back to heaven? And so we're looking through these 12 great reasons why. This one, number four, is something that some of the others are more directly about him. Some of the other reasons we focused on, this is more directly about us. He had to ascend for you and for me. And you haven't experienced it yet, but you are going to have a moment's experience in time. And then that will, that will affect everything that comes after that, where you're going to be super, super appreciative that Jesus ascended into heaven because it affects you and your relationship to heaven. So John chapter three, this is the famous chapter where Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus, one of the the great uh, leaders, uh, religious leaders of the Jews, one of the leading Pharisees. And there's so much in this passage. This is the passage where we get the, you must be born again um, focus of the Lord Jesus. But I want to just focus on one particular element of this, and that is in verse, I'll start in, I'll start in verse 12, and the focus here is on verse 13. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The first thing I, I want us to get is that the reason we're focused on the ascension study is that we're, now we're engaged in the, the consideration of what Jesus here categorizes as heavenly things. How much of your life has been entirely wrapped up in the concern and the consideration and the focus on earthly things only? How much of your life? I mean, just if we were to just measure this amount in terms of just time, this percentage of the time that I've spent in this world has been entirely focused just on earthly stuff. And that doesn't mean bad stuff. Like, you know, how am I gonna, how am I gonna go to work tomorrow and what am I gonna do at work tomorrow? Or how am I gonna take care of the kids tomorrow? Or how am I gonna do this tomorrow? Whatever you're, you're taking care of your responsibilities. That's good, that's wonderful stuff but it is earthly stuff. And how little of your time in this world has been focused on, spent on the consideration of heavenly things. What's interesting here, he's talking to one of the greatest religious leaders among the Jewish people at that moment on earth. Nicodemus knew more about the Lord and about God than just about anybody else on the face of the earth. And yet Jesus has to say to him, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, he's struggling just to understand biblical principles as they apply to earthly things only. And then Jesus introduces, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And yet, interestingly, he goes from right that moment, he goes on to actually tell him about heavenly things. Whether, whether he embraced it, whether he got it or not, we don't know for sure. Most early Christian tradition tells us that Nicodemus later came to know the Lord in the exact way Jesus describes in this chapter, the new birth way, and actually became a true follower of Christ. But verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, for you and I, it shouldn't be a a difficult identification to know who Jesus is referencing here as the Son of Man. This is his preferred, I'm talking about during his earthly ministry here in this world. This is his preferred and most common self-designation. 
Jesus, of all the names that he used, and he used several from the Old Testament to apply to himself, several characteristic and special names so that you would understand who he truly was. But the Son of Man is his most favored name, the one he most commonly uses. And that should be super familiar to us because we've several times already in this study, and I'll revisit it probably a few times before we're finished, uh, not so much today, but in other studies that are ahead of us. In the Daniel 7 uh, prophecy, the vision that Daniel had of heaven, he saw the Son of Man ascending up to, back to, the one who sits upon the throne in heaven, the Ancient of Days, in order to receive the kingdom and glory from the Father who sits upon the throne. So we know that Jesus is the Son of Man in this verse. But what does he say? He says, no one has ascended, ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So there's two really important declarations that Jesus makes here. The second one is about himself, which is, he tells us in one single verse, and it's amazing how the Lord is able to do this. It takes me weeks to say what he says literally in, in one sentence. And that is that Jesus came from heaven. He came into this world that's descended from heaven into this world. And then he is going to return to heaven in the great event that we now identify as the ascension. But it's the first part that I really want to emphasize this morning and focus our attention on, and that is Jesus makes an absolute declaration, and it's either true or it's not true, and it's a declaration that's easily read past, overlooked, not really gotten, not really understood to the extent that we should understand it in terms of its implications. Who is included in the category that's identified in the two short words that start the verse. No one. Who is he talking about? No human being in all of human history. No human being in all of human history has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man who has descended from heaven. Now, at the moment Jesus is speaking this, this is fairly early in his public ministry. And we know that his public ministry lasted approximately three and a half years. And so he still got somewhere around three years of his public ministry and his life in this world ahead of him chronologically at the moment that he speaks these words. He's speaking about something that hasn't happened yet, his own ascension, before it happens, as if it's already a completed fact, as if it's already happened. Only the Lord can do that, by the way. You and I can't do that. You know, like um, if I say I'm intending to go to such and such a location and it hasn't happened yet, I would never say I've already gone there. In fact, James later in the, in the New Testament tells us it's presumption for you and I to speak like the future for, of our lives, our plans, what we intend to do is a completed fact. Because why? How many times have you planned something out and then the Lord redirected your steps in a way that you hadn't anticipated and hadn't planned and you ended up somewhere different than where you thought you were going to end up? That's literally the story of my life. And if you see it with open eyes it's the story of your life as well but Jesus is able to do that why because what he plans and what he purposes he has the power and the sovereignty to make it happen exactly as he says it's going to happen and that's certainly the case here the ascension of Christ was pre-planned from before the foundation of the world and so he can, three years before the event, he can speak about it. It's, it's functioning here like what we call Bible prophecy in the Old Testament. You know, there might be prophecies like the prophecy of Isaiah about the, about the birth of the Messiah. He spoke that prophetic description of the Messiah's entry into the world 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But 
the fact that he spoke it 700 years before doesn't mean, well, there's a big chance it couldn't happen or it might not happen exactly that way. It happened exactly the way he declared that it would because he was speaking from the Lord and the Lord was revealing what he was intending, planning, and would certainly accomplish to do. So in this sense, Jesus can speak about his ascension before it happens as a, as a completed event. No one has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man who has descended from heaven. All right, so that means up until that moment of time, as he spoke these words, if these words are true, and they most certainly are, no human being in all of history, who's the first human being? Adam, from Adam to the moment Christ spoke these words, and we're including a a broad category of every human being between Adam and Christ, no one of those human beings had ever ascended into heaven. Now, this is something that even many believers, hopefully none of you didn't know that, and if you didn't, now you do, and be glad for that. It's an important principle, and I'll explain why in just a moment, but I know many believers, I've encountered many believers that did not understand that all, because there were lots of believers between Adam and Christ, lots of true followers of the Lord. You know, we can name the most famous ones. Just pick one, Moses, because he references Moses in the very next verse. Moses was how great of a man of God? The greatest ever at that moment in history. I mean, the Lord himself described Moses as the most humble man on the face of the earth. Wouldn't you love for that to be the Lord's description of you? I mean, just to have reached that level of spiritual sanctification, growth in the Lord. As great as Moses was, he died and did not, did not, underline the word not, ascend into heaven. Now we normally think, you and I think, and rightly so as true believers, you and I think, when I die, what's going to happen to my soul? Where is it going to go? Is it just floating around like a ghost, like people believe that, a lot of people believe out in the culture and the society around us that when you're, when you're body dies, your soul disconnects from your body and it just kind of hangs around as a ghost and haunts people and causes trouble. Where does your soul go? It depends on your relationship with the Lord. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord, if you're not right with the Lord, at the moment your soul disconnects from your body, you literally actually go to a location. It's a spiritual one, but it's a real location. We call it hell and it's not a pleasant place. It's not a final place. You're just waiting there for the day of judgment, suffering, and then on the day of judgment, you will encounter from that point forward worse suffering for all of eternity if you do not know the Lord. And that's real. It's not a fantasy. It's not just a a Christian mythology. It actually is and will happen. But for those of us who know the Lord, Today, God forbid, one of us breathe our last breath. I say God forbid, but if one of us did breathe our last breath, it would be in the Lord's hands. There's a, a pastor I used to know. I say used to know because he's not alive anymore. A uh, pastor I used to know who was preaching one Sunday morning like I'm preaching right now. And he finished his message and he turned to walk. He was on stage. He turned to walk off stage and collapsed on the stage with a brain aneurysm that he didn't know he was going to have. And his last moments in this world were preaching the gospel. And, you know, I've always, he he died as a fairly young man. He was like in his early 50s. And, um, you know, I've always thought, what a way to go. You know, my, my end is in the Lord's hands, but if I could choose, that's how I would like to go out. Not necessarily at 50, but you know, you understand what I'm saying. But the moment he died on that stage, um, his soul disconnected from his body and did not go to hell. His soul went where? To heaven. 
to be with the Lord. And we're confident about that. We know that. We, I am hanging all of my spiritual hats on that one pole. That's what I'm anchored to. That the, the, the last moment my heart beats, the last breath I take in this world is going to lead immediately and directly to my soul being escorted by angelic escort into the presence of God, into the throne room of God, and to be with him until his second coming. And then my spirit will be reunited, not with this old ragged body, but a new and glorified and powerful body like his own. And then I'll be with him forever and ever. But the point being that as I die here, I go, and I'm confident of this, I go immediately to be with the Lord. That was not the case for Moses. That was not the case for Abraham. That was not the case for Noah. It was not the case for Isaiah. It was not the case for Jeremiah. It was not the case for Ezekiel. And you can go on and on and name any of the ones that we consider to be the greats of the Old Testament, but this applied to all who knew the Lord from Adam until Christ. If what Jesus says in verse 13 is true, no one has ascended into heaven. Heaven had a locked gate at its front door. And even if someone's soul managed to find its way to heaven in the Old Testament, they were not allowed in the gate. Can't come in. Why? Because Christ has not come in first. The very first human being to enter into heaven following death, and in his case, it's not just death, but following death and resurrection. The first human being that entered into heaven was Christ himself. But when he entered, he did not enter alone. Let's turn to another passage, and this one is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. It's a famous story that Jesus tells. And it is, it is oftentimes, by some believers, categorized as a parable. However, it was not a parable. It's an important distinction. Um, Jesus told stories, you know this, we studied through the Gospel of Matthew together. There's a whole section in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 13 that are parables, and then he told other parables that are sprinkled throughout the Gospel as well. And the parables of Jesus are super important spiritual stories that are aimed at enlightening or opening the eyes of our hearts to a greater extent to understand the purposes of God in his kingdom. But what is unique about parables as a story is none of those are true. They are, they are representing truth, but they are not true. Do you understand the distinction? Truth is they contain principles of truth that are meant to be applied to our lives. But the story itself is a made-up story. Is it okay for the Lord to make up a story in order to make a point that helps you to understand some spiritual principle that you would entirely miss without that story? Yeah, it's fine. Have you ever made up a story to tell your children some point that you wanted them to get that they were clearly missing and you knew a story will help them to understand the principle? Sure, so you make up a story. That's your own version of a parable. This account that I'm about to read is not a parable. It's a real thing, a real event of real history that actually happened and Jesus knew about it. Verse 19 of Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the point of that is he wasn't in the greatest circumstances or condition, obviously. The poor man died, was carried by the angels, where? Now, just, this is a cheat on the story. The cheat is, 
the poor man is the good guy in the story. You know, there's good guys and bad guys in stories. The, the rich man is the bad guy. The poor man is the good guy. And when good guys die now, where do they go? They go to heaven. Because only good guys get to go into heaven. Not because they're good in their own goodness, but they're good because God has made them good through the saving work of the cross. Anyway, the point being that the good guy dies. He does not go to heaven. Where does he go? He was, as it's described here, he was carried. That means, earlier I referenced, my hope is when I die, that my soul will be escorted. I could have used the word carried. But my soul will be escorted, carried into heaven. That's not the case for this poor man, Lazarus. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, if you think Abraham is in heaven, then of course you think he was carried into heaven. But as we're about to discover, Abraham was not in heaven, neither was this poor man. And and we're talking about their souls here, not their physical bodies. Because their physical bodies are, are decomposing on earth. Their soul is alive and aware and conscious. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. In the old King James translation that some of you are more familiar with, it's the word bosom. It just means close to Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, which is the unseen realm, and just to be clear, that unseen realm had two sections in it. And as we're about to read, those two sections were separated by a chasm that could not be crossed. People that were carried to one section could not cross over to the other section, and people carried to the second section could not cross over to the first section. Why would they want to cross over? One section was pleasant, and the other section is, present tense, exceptionally unpleasant. One section was, past tense, unpleasant. The other section is, was then, and still is, today, unpleasant. I'll explain in a moment. And in Hades being in torment, that's the second unpleasant section, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. uh, Abraham doesn't identify there who did the fixing but you can be confident no it's God himself that fixed the great chasm between the two sections in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us so the idea is that there were people in both sections one section exceptionally unpleasant to the point that the word used to describe their experience was in anguish and in flame and of course they would want to if they could cross the chasm to get to Abraham's side where it was exceptionally pleasant but interestingly some on Abraham's side might want to cross to the other side why would anyone want to cross to the other side because there were good people in that side and they, they, had, they had feelings of compassion toward those that were in the other side that if they could, they would dip their finger in water and go and quench the thirst by touching the tongue of the person that was, was in anguish. All right, so why this whole scenario? And again, not a parable, not a made-up story, a real description of a real spiritual circumstance. From Adam until Christ, every human being that ever lived went to this location as soon as they died. Their soul disconnected from their body and by angelic escort, meaning you don't get to go to some third place. It's one of these two sections of the unseen realm known as Hades. Your soul is assigned by God himself 
one spot or the other in these two sections and your soul is carried by angels to the section that you belong to. Who decides which section you go to? God himself. Obviously, it would have to be that way because all of the souls, if they were escorted to the general location and given kind of the lay of the land, kind of a tour of Hades, and said, well, here's the pleasant area with Abraham, and here's the unpleasant area where you can go be in anguish and be in flames. Um, which would you like? The, the second section would be emptied, right? Yeah. I mean, who would choose that? No one would choose that. Literally, no one would choose that. But the choices that needed to be made needed to be made before they breathed their last breath in this world, before their heart beat the last time. So nevertheless, every soul that ever lived from Adam to Christ was carried at the moment of death to this location and assigned a place in one of those two sections. So does that mean that when we die, we go to Abraham's side? The answer is no. We go, you and I, go to Christ's side. Now, um, let's turn to one last passage of scripture on this issue, which is Ephesians chapter four. And I can already see I'm not gonna get through my whole four things today. It's all Bob's fault. We're going to read from Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, it here represents the Old Testament scriptures, and specifically what Paul is about to quote, what he's about to reference, and then what he's about to apply to Christ is a passage from a messianic psalm, Psalm 68. We've studied what messianic psalms are. Out of the 150 special inspired worship songs of the people of Israel in the Old Testament era, uh, the book of Psalms, some of them, a few of them, were special even among the 150 special songs. And there was, they were extra, like in a sense, double special because they were aimed prophetically in the lyrics of the song of describing in advance things about Christ when he would come. Either things about his person or things about his work. And in this case, the work that's focused on is the ascension. So Paul references Psalm 68, and this is the reference. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high... So he ascended on high in the event that we call the ascension. And here, Psalm 68 and Paul make clear that when he ascended on high, meaning at the exact same moment of time in history, something else happened along with his ascension. What happened is when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That last phrase I'm saving toward the end of our list of 12 uh, for a future study, um, but it's important to understand for us that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Now, the word host is used in our culture, generally speaking nowadays, to talk about... Um, when you have people over to your house. You host an event, you host a dinner, you host a party. Um, so it's, it's referencing you know, bringing people into your home. And there is some application of that concept here, but this is from an older way, an older context of the word host. In the old days, a host would refer not just to welcoming someone into your home, but it could describe what we would call an entire army arrayed for battle. Think of, for those 
Yeah, it's been a while. Some of you haven't seen this movie in probably too long, but think of the Lord of the Rings and all of the assembled armies of right and good that are about to do battle with the assembled armies of darkness and evil. And the, that movie did a spectacular job of, of kind of portraying that on the battlefield. Just before the battle starts, you see an array of the host of the armies of goodness. That sense, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. The question is, who are these captives? Now, in the original psalm, the Messianic psalm, what's interesting is it's a psalm that was written to describe a great event in Old Testament history, one of the greatest events. It's a psalm written to describe the event that we call the Exodus. And in the Exodus, the Lord did something amazing. It had never been done in all of human history before that. He took a nation of people who were enslaved and captured by another greater nation, the Israelites being enslaved by the Egyptians. And he went in and rescued them from their captivity. And he led them in martial procession out of Egypt across the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and eventually into their new and permanent home in the promised land. He led a host of captives in triumphal, victorious procession from Egypt to the promised land. And what Paul is saying, what Paul is doing is taking that description of the Exodus and now applying it in a greater sense to the ascension of Christ. And he's saying that the Exodus is in history a picture of the ascension. Because what led them through the wilderness? What led them across the Red Sea? What led them eventually into the promised land? The pillar of fire and cloud, which was filled with the glory presence of the Lord himself. And the people of God, each time they broke camp and marched a further day's journey forward toward their destination, the people of God were following the presence of God in the pillar of fire and cloud like a giant train of the redeemed through that journey. So that if you had a a helicopter bird's eye view, you would see a procession through the wilderness because there were by best estimates, maybe three million people, three million captives who were now free, but they were captives. So they're identified as captives in order to give greater glory to the one who has rescued them from their captivity. So how does this relate to the ascension? Christ, when he ascended on high, led a host of captives. Who was captive? Abraham, Adam, Noah, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and on and on and on. Daniel, David, all of the faithful, believing people of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, they were captive still from the point of their death until the ascension of Christ. They were captive not in the sense of they're in a horrible place. They were in, at, at Abraham's side. They were in the, the pleasant category. And you, you can ask me, oh, how pleasant was it? Go ahead, ask me. How pleasant was it? It was pretty pleasant. It was far more pleasant than the people in the other category. That's all we know. It was pleasant. It was good. Kind of so good that, you know, have you ever been in a good place and it was time to move on, but you just wanted to stay there for a while? This is good right here. The sun's shining just right and you know, I've got everything I want. I don't want to move on. But as pleasant as it was at Abraham's side in the unseen realm of Hades, the good side of Hades, the good category of Hades, as pleasant as it was, it wasn't as pleasant as heaven. It wasn't as pleasant as the throne room of heaven itself. And so when Christ ascended, he went to the unseen realm. And he evacuated 
one entire section of Hades. Which section do you think he evacuated? The good guys, the redeemed, the saved, the faithful, the ones that were his true followers. He took them out of that section, including Abraham. And now what matters most from that point forward is not Abraham's side, but his side. And they went with him in his ascension. You couldn't physically see them, but spiritually they were led in his train like a triumphal procession to heaven. And he reached the gates before they did, and he went through the gates before they did, but they followed immediately in his train. And suddenly, from the ascension of Christ forward, heaven was populated with redeemed human beings, and it never had been before that moment in history. And how this applies to you and I, of course, when you and I die now, and this is entirely based only on if you're truly born again. But if you are, the moment your soul detaches from this dying and progressively more decrepit physical body in the experience of your death, the moment your soul disconnects, you are carried, but you're not carried to Hades. You are carried into heaven itself. You're carried into the throne room of God. You're carried into the presence of the Lord to be with him forever and ever and ever. So much so that Paul says this in his own anticipation of this moment, which has already happened to him now, but the moment that he wrote this, it hadn't happened to him yet. This is from Philippians chapter one, verse 23, excuse me, verse, um, let me double check my note here. This is, uh, yeah, verse 21. Philippians one twenty-one. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, meaning I have more opportunity to serve the Lord. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. There's two options in front of him. They're both good options, but one's better than the other. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Think of your best day here in this world. The best day you have ever had. I know you've had at least one best day, right? One best day. Everything just pretty much worked out exactly the way you would want it to work out. Uh, It's hard for me to describe my best day. It's either the day that I was born again which was also my worst day until it was my best day. <laughs> or it's one of the days that in Kenya, maybe, where I've uh, had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to those who needed it the most and help the pastors to grow in their understanding of God's word so that they could help their people, their sheep, their flock to grow. But I've had best days, but my best day here in this world is going to pale in comparison if I were to compare it to the first day that I will be in heaven. Far better, Paul says, far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your, for your progress and join the faith. The point being, Paul's, Paul, in his desire to stay on earth, it was a sacrificial thing. He was loving them with the God they loved to even want to stay. Because for him, it would be to every advantage. Just kill me now, Lord. Just kill me now. It's better for me to go and be with you. But for the sake of my assignment, for the sake of the the ministry that you've given me to accomplish, I will stay and I will continue and I'll be faithful and I'll be fruitful. The point is, in Paul's anticipation of what's going to happen to him, he says... In verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Notice he doesn't say, I, 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 my desire is to depart and go to Abraham's side. 
he would have had he lived before Christ. He would have departed, John the Baptist even, departed and went to Abraham's side. Sometimes people ask, well, aren't there exceptions to that? Like Enoch, he lived in the, in the book of Genesis and then he was not for God took him. The question is, where did God take him? Some people think he went directly to heaven. No, he did not. Not of John 3.13 is correct. Not of Jesus is correct. Not of Jesus declared the truth when he said, no one has ascended into heaven up until that moment in time. So Enoch went to Abraham's bosom. Some people think Elijah, he was carried up from, from Elisha's observation in a chariot of fire into the sky. Certainly the next stop would be heaven itself. No, the Lord was just showing him, he's going to be with me, but be with me in the extended way of being in, in paradise, what is often called paradise, Abraham's side. But now we can join Paul and say that when it's our time to depart from this world, we go to be with Christ. And where is Christ? Seated upon the throne of God in the most pleasant location in all of existence, bar none, far above all others. That's the application of the ascension for us. All right, I got one good one accomplished today. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see and to understand the greatness of what you have accomplished in the ascension of your son back to heaven where he is enthroned and is awaiting us. I am so thankful, Lord, that we belong to you and because we belong to you and only because we belong to you and only because he first opened the way into your presence, into heaven itself, we are now given an immediate caring escort into your presence at the moment that our life in this world comes to an end, to be with you forever and ever. Thank you so much. In the name of your son, amen.